And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. Over the years, I've struggled with a very important question, and that is, what can I say, what can I show to an investor that will help them get it that they can't know the future, they can't know the future short-term, intermediate, or long-term. Now, there's plenty of evidence that in the long-term, if you're positioned in a diversified portfolio of equities, whether they're large or small, or value or growth, that you're probably going to get a decent return. But on a short-term basis, and even an intermediate-term basis, you may find yourself coming up quite short of what you expected. And it is my sense that these expectations for what it is that we want, that we almost feel like we deserve, those expectations, if you get that wrong you are not as likely to be successful in the long term. There is something that causes people to give up. And if we can figure out what that is, and if we can educate them, help them create more realistic expectations, prepare them for the tough times, it is my sense that they will be better investors in the long term. And as I was looking at the the newest update to the, uh, what as I'm looking at it here, it says table 46. I'm not sure what you're going to see it as. We'll make that very clear in the uh, description of this podcast. But what I do know is on this page of numbers, and oh, there are a lot of small numbers, But on this page of numbers, we're taking a look at not just, in essence, the returns of the S&P 500 and some combination of that uh, with bonds, whether it be all bonds or 50% bonds or 70% bonds, many different combinations of equities and fixed income. And in this particular case, It is strictly the S&P 500. Now, keep in mind that the S&P 500 didn't actually exist for the public to invest in until 1976 when John Bogle and Vanguard brought out that first index fund that has become so famous. But even before 1976, Uh, the returns of what was called the S&P 500 was being tracked. And the academics have even gone back and recreated as close as they can the returns of what they would have been from 1926 on. So in this particular table, the big focus is the is the stock, the S&P 500 stock index. And the only adjustment that we've made uh, is the adjustment to some minor, small amount of expense ratio 
uh, to manage that index. Now, here again, even though the S&P 500 became available in 1976, the expenses were far more than one-tenth of one percent, which is what we've used in this study. But to try to make it as realistic as we could, given what we know today, how would you have done with the S&P 500 by itself or along with these other asset uh, uh, fixed income asset classes? Now, the other thing that we've done to try to make this realistic is we have assumed, starting in January of 1970, that you made a monthly contribution based on an annual investment of $1,000 in 1970. So that was about $83 a month. And as good fortune has it, we, we uh, have the monthly returns of the S&P 500 uh, going back to the 20s. So in 1970, if you put away, I think, $83.33 a month, by the end of the year, you would have invested your $1,000, and with whatever happened to the market that year, you ended the year with $1,021. Now, that's not much of a return, but that wasn't much of a year. But it's one out of 40. When I say one out of 40, on this particular table, that's one out of 49. But I'm always thinking about that 40-year period of saving for retirement. And certainly for a lot of people, it probably will be 49 years by the time they start taking money out. And what is probably not realistic here is this $1,000 a year for 49 years. Now, what what we did in this table is make the assumption that each year inflation would be 3% and that each year we would then adjust the amount of the investment from $1,000 the first year to $1,030 the second to $1,061 in the third so, in essence, we could say maybe that was a kind of a raise that you got, regardless of what inflation was, but that you, over all those years, you made a little more each year. You may not have kept up with inflation, but you made a little more each year, and, uh, and that gets adjusted in how much you put away. So, you can see on the far right-hand column, there's a number that represents the annual contribution that starts with $1,000 the first year. By the, uh, the 10th year, 1979, it was 1305 By the last year, 2018, it was 4132 So that's what it took to replace $1,000, assuming a 3% compound increase of uh, payment each year. So the total amount of money that you actually invested was $108,541. So what I'm hoping you're going to see and internalize is that 
Over those years, the stock market was all over the place. In fact, we have another link there to the fine-tuning table that shows the return for each year. It was those returns that were applied here, remember, on a monthly basis. So you could have a year that the market was up a lot, but maybe early in the year it was down a lot. And so that would have create a different annual return than if for the year it was it was up little, but in the early part of the year when you were buying it, it went up a lot, but then came back down. I mean, the, the series of returns are, are going to, to put these outcomes all over the place, but this is what really happened. So here's what I see that I hope you'll get, is that you... You started investing in 1970. Let's make that assumption. You were putting away money on a monthly basis in the hopes that this was going to grow. You would get good returns. And by the way, there are two sources of income in this account. There are two reasons this account is going to grow or that we expect it to grow. The first is from the money you put in. That we know is going to be, at least in hindsight, we know that it was $108,541. That was your contribution to whatever it began became. And you could say that's what you could control. But what happened to those investments you had no control. So, by the end of the first 10 years, you have put away $11,465. Remember the original $1,000 plus those 3% inflation adjustments. But when you look at the value of the account itself, Based on all those monthly contributions, you ended the 10 years with $16,187. Was that a home run? Well, I wouldn't call that a home run. Was it a complete bust? Well, it may not have been great, but there was a profit there. So let's call that, I gave it a grade of a one to five, I suspect we might give it a, a two and a half. Now, the next 10 years, again, not knowing what's going to happen, you continue to put away that in 3% inflation-adjusted amount each year, always on a monthly basis. And for the next 10 years from 1980 through 1989, you put in about $14,654. So what have you got? You've, you've got total investments over the first 20 years of about 26000 But the account had grown to $118,874. Who'd have thunk, huh? After what you went through in the 70s? I suspect you may have uh, 
Uh, you may have modified your expectation for return because you have lived through a period that due to some decent-sized losses in 73 and 74, that uh, that period, the first 10 years weren't so great, but the second 10 years, evidently we can say they were, they were great. If you could just keep that up, you could have a lot of money. Maybe you could even retire early. Maybe even after a handful of good years, you start thinking about the good life in retirement. Again, knowing intellectually you have no idea what return is going to be thrown at you, you just know that your commitment is to saving the money. It's your job to show me the money. Then it is whatever the market gives you. So at the end of 20 years to have been put in about $26,000 and having 118, almost 119,000 to show for it, not bad. In fact, at that point, we might even give it a four out of five. Now, I could imagine at the end of that 10 years being pretty good Particularly now, if you had started back in 1970, you might be saying to yourself, well, I've had a period that was pretty good and a period that was pretty pretty mediocre. Could be this is the way it's going to be. Yeah, kind of a mediocre one, followed by a really good one, then another mediocre, then another good. You're going to start trying to create patterns that don't exist. But... They maybe are the things that you negotiate with yourself that give you a sense of it's okay to keep going. And boy, did you go. In that third decade, you put in $20,706. And uh, that means your total investment now over that first 30 years was 46825 Remember, it keeps going up because you're having that adjustment each year for inflation. But at the end of that decade, your portfolio was worth $689,226. Now we're talking... That I could give a five on a one to five rating. You started the period with 118,874 and you end with $689,226. Now, early retirement, it may really be in your grasp. Remember, this is being done with $1,000 as the base plus the 3% increases each year. So this is not a lot of money compared to what most of you are going to be saving. And I even suspect, let's say somebody was saving for $5,000 a year. Well, all of a sudden, if it's $5,000 a year, and you're multiplying five times 690000 this, this is some real money. This certainly would be what we would call retirement territory. 
So there you are. You've been through a mediocre year, a good year, decade, I should say, and finally, a great decade. Now, you still don't know what the next year is going to bring or the next decade is going to bring, but I can tell you what people believed. In 1999, people believed that for the next decade, they would likely get a 20 to 30% compound rate of return. And when you look at the 30 years, how could anybody come to that conclusion? What was there about that 30 years or the previous years before that that would lead anybody to believe that over a decade, a 20 to 30% compound rate of return was in fact, it's something that might happen. But I would think it, it's fair to say that most people were pretty doggone upbeat at that moment. So what does this teach us? Well, let me give you a little more information so you can see how easy it was to believe that 20-plus percent was possible because from 1995 to 1999, the S&P 500 did compound at about 28.5%. So all you were doing was thinking linearly. And by the way, the same kind of linear thinking that happens in thinking of the market going down. And I'll talk about that in just a second. Because what's about to happen in that period from 2000 through 2009 is the S&P 500 went down. And it went down a lot. In fact, twice during that decade, it went down over 50%. So you put a fair amount of money in, uh, you invested about uh, almost $28,000, uh, that's in, in theory inflation adjusted from where you started. Remember the first decade, it was 11465 Now you're up to almost $28,000. So you are, you're, you're making a big contribution here to the final result. But by the end of that decade, by the end of the decade, your portfolio, which had been worth $689,226 at the end of 1999, is now worth $649,360. And you're actually probably saying something like, boy, am I lucky. I'm surprised I have any money left at all for what we've been through over the last 10 years. And you've probably totally forgotten that a decade before you had very high hopes. And so this is the kind of random uh, unpredictability that's a part of investing. And anybody, anybody who, who, who is predicting something on a, a short-term, well, first of all, on a long-term basis, anybody telling you where the market's going to be a year from now or five years or ten years, they're just blowing smoke. But 
I can see where somebody would be glad they were still standing and had about $650,000. By the way, at that point, you've only invested, uh, let's see, something like uh, uh, 46825 plus uh, 28000 So what is that? It's about $73,000, $74,000. Still a pretty good return. Now, here is the impact of that terrible 10 years. And this explains why surveys show that young people, millennials, are afraid of the market because the market they went through, they might even have been old enough to remember how, how, how optimistic people were at the end of 1999. And in fact, they had to sit through two bloodbaths. Maybe, maybe seeing their parents twice, twice go through huge losses. And, and I, I might add, this is the S&P 500 we're looking at here. This is the higher quality asset class. So, what do we know has happened? of millennials believe that for long-term investments, the best place to put it is in cash or bonds, something that doesn't have this kind of volatility and risk that goes nowhere, because that's their view of the market. I recently had a conversation with a student, a senior up at Western in Bellingham. And uh, he knows, I believe, in small cap value. He's sat through the classes. And he knows, I believe, in equities. But he's having a hard time thinking that he should be putting very much in small cap value. After all, it hasn't done as well as the S&P 500. Well, that's the way this, this crazy business works. From 2000 through 2009, the S&P 500 lost 1% a year compounded. Small cap value compounded at 12.4% for that same period. I mean, that was a, that was a home run to have uh, done that well. In fact, it was for that period of time, with the exception of small cap value international, which compounded at 12.9, or the emerging market small cap blend, which compounded at 14.1, this was a big producer. And sometimes it feels like any gain is better than none when your neighbor's been losing money. But that decade, even though it is statistically not important in terms of making any judgments about the future, was enough to scare people away from the market. But when you see the last decade, 2010, by the way, it's not a complete decade. We've got one more year to go. But I can tell you that for that nine years of the 10-year decade that's about to finish, 
you started at $649,000 and you ended with $1,798,679. Almost $1.8 million, almost three times what you had at the end of the previous decade that made people decide that you should never be in the stock market. Put your money in bonds. Put your money in cash. It's almost like having money under the pillow is better than taking the risk of the stock market. Show me the evidence. Show me the money. Show me the strategies that work over the very long term. But also, give me some sense of reality of what the ride is likely to be like. And I don't know if it's that much different from the rest of life. I could go back over my life. If I just looked at the final, the bottom line at the end of all my working years and my saving years, I've ended up with more than I need, which was my goal. I wanted to do something honorable while I was saving and putting money away. But my, I, that was my goal, to, to, in essence, oversave. And we'll talk more about that in another podcast. But if I went back and started to trace my life, whether health, Um, marital situations, challenges with children, uh, all the different kinds of things I did in my business career, uh, and, and just the natural things that happen to people who are out trying to do well. Because in the process of doing well, all of us, almost all of us, get beat up along the way. Why should investing be any different? But here's what happens. If at the, uh, after a period of time like, like uh, 19, I'm sorry, 2000 through 2009, a 10-year period that you're not, you can't be proud of what you ended up with, You even put in more money, and you still lost $50,000. $40,000. A lot. So what happens is you become susceptible to the sales pitch of people who maybe did well during that period of time. Could I be guilty of that in talking to people as well? Could I be have said at the end of that 10-year period, well, I'm really sorry you didn't do well, and I, I understand why you trusted the S&P 500 after all. From 1975 to 1999, it compounded at better than 17% a year. Who wouldn't be optimistic about that? But during that period of time that your investment in the S&P 500 was struggling, well, I had a strategy that uh, 
had some of the stocks making 12%, some making 14 I'm sorry you weren't part of it, but come on, let's get on board and take take part. But the difference about my sales pitch and the sales pitch I want you to tell yourself is that I didn't say give up on the S&P 500. I didn't have more than about 10% of the equities in the S&P 500. And then I had 10% in the small cap value U.S. and 10% in small cap value international. If I was so smart, why didn't I have all the money in small cap value? Because I'm not that smart and I'll never be that smart. Because anybody you expect to tell you what's going to happen in the future, if they are a rotten salesperson or maybe real profitable for the firm, they'll convince you that they do know and they don't. What I want you to know is that you are going to be exposed to some very difficult times with an all-equity portfolio, but wait a minute, the 100% stock is not the only column to look at here. What about the 60-40 column? 60% equities, 40% fixed income. How did it do in that terrible, terrible 10-year period from 2000 through 2009? Well, you started the period with $411,985 and you finished with 545609 You made a lot of money during that time period that the S&P 500 lost money. And why did you make money? Well, because you didn't have all your money in the S&P 500. You had part of your portfolio dialed down in terms of volatility, by adding fixed income. And so at the end of that 10 years, you could see that you made almost a, almost 150000 A lot of that money came out of your own pocket, but not all of it. Some of it actually was because the market went up part of that time, and having the bonds protected you from the the, the, the toughest devastation. Now, a crooked salesperson might say, well, you mean somebody told you to be 100% in equities? Oh, that's crazy. I had my clients 60% in equities and 40% in fixed income, and instead of losing money, we made money. Well, yes, you can see that that's what would have happened. But one, how did they do in the previous years? And if we want to look into the future, we can, in theory, in that we can see what happened by the end of this 49-year period with the 60-40 strategy. You ended up with 1.14 million versus 1.8 million for the all-stock portfolio. So the people in all stocks got rewarded in the long term, but they paid a price in the short term.
That's the decision that all of you have to struggle with. See, the, so many of you are do-it-yourselfers, and I'm, I'm proud of you, I'm rooting for you, I want you to do well. But I'm not sure all of you have an honest conversation with yourself about how you're going to feel when the market is down 50% twice in 10 years. And so, unfortunately, too many people, just like these millennials who are afraid to put money in the market. And by the way, those are the very people that had they been in the market in the late in the late 90s would have been happy as can be to have all their money in the market because they just made a killing. And they would just be setting themselves up potentially to get killed. So I think this table is powerful because I think, see, it's it's. Different. It's different than looking at the returns, the fine-tuning your asset allocation table. It, it looks at like how those investments would have done one year at a time. But I want you to look through the eyes of the investor who is saying, we're in a partnership here. I'm playing my part as a partner by putting money in. I'm going to keep this thing rolling forward even when the market is not being a very good partner. I'm going to keep moving forward. For example, if you look at the years 1973 and 1974, you started 1973 with... uh, Three point or three thousand eight hundred and sixty nine thousand dollars. You ended nineteen seventy four with four thousand one hundred and sixteen. You just lived through two of the worst years in in the market, and you made money. And how did you do that? Because you wrote checks to make up for that lousy decline in the market. That while you were trying to come out ahead, it was trying to help you lose money. Well, I wouldn't call that help. but So this is a different view of investing. And in some ways, this is the more real view than the page that simply shows the raw returns. And, and I hope that... Uh, you'll learn somehow how to put this all together. Because remember, recently we've been talking about the glide path. See, I'm thinking that when you're in your 20s and your 30s, you should be all in stocks. Now, what we don't know is, let's say there's 20 years you're all in stocks. Is that 20 years going to look like 1970 through 1989? Or will it look like, oh, let's say uh, 1990 through 2009? We don't know what it's going to look like. Could you have two 
10-year periods that look like 1970 through 1979. Sure, sure you could. And so taking all of this volatility, profitability, and at times losing money, how do you build a glide path that says, okay, I'm going to be all equities from age 20 to 39, then starting at age 40, I'm going to start adding 5% a year in bonds. And every time you're making that adjustment to putting some bonds in there, you're changing the the nature of your portfolio. So by the time you're 65, you might be, like my wife and I, you might be 50% in stocks and 50% in bonds. We will uh, produce the other tables in the coming weeks, the tables that show this same analysis with the worldwide balance strategy as well as the all-value, big and small, U.S. and international. Uh, You could, too, uh, maybe I'll even do this for one of these days, is look just at the S&P 500 over this period of time on a basis of putting away $1,000 a year. I could see some people deciding to put $1,000 a year into the S&P, another thousand into small cap value, another thousand into emerging markets, another thousand in large cap value, U.S., maybe a thousand a month a year in the REITs. Uh, there are lots of different approaches to building that, uh, uh, that diversified portfolio. But the better your expectations are in life, in almost every part of your life, the more likely you are to be successful. So uh, here's a little piece of reality. I hope it gives you some context and some, a, a good view of what you're likely to go through. In fact, I hope that you conclude you have no idea when and how it's going to make you a lot of money, but in the long term, I hope you believe it will. That helps a lot. Thanks for listening, and um, got some young people who are in the accumulation stage of their life. Why don't you share this with them? See, see if it helps. I think of that 30% of those millennials who are voting for cash and bonds. I would love to get this information in front of them so they can take a good look at where if you were all in bonds over this entire period, you would, uh, well, by the way, you would have put in 108000 and uh, it would be worth 470000 You may say that's not bad. But when you adjust it for inflation... It's also not good enough. Thanks for listening. 
That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.